0: Good morning. It is so good to be together for worship, for celebrating the goodness of the Lord. But what do you say when you're preaching a sermon a few weeks before retirement, when you've been part of a community for one year short of three decades, and when what you have to say has been largely learned from the very people to whom you're speaking You won't be surprised to hear that I struggled with several false starts on this sermon and finally came back to one of the major projects I've been working on for the last several years because it has emerged from my life here and from my experiences with you all and from the wisdom shared or embodied by many of you. But to begin, let me express my deep gratitude for the ways this community and the individuals in it have shaped and formed me. My walk with Christ, my scholarship, my vision for the future. So much of who we are is shaped by those around us. Especially as we pursue the same grand, ooh, oh dear, Uh, sorry. But especially as we pursue the same grand vision and mission. All of my projects have involved other people and their insights, and so many of those people have been connected to Asbury. Even this time, I'm especially grateful for my research assistant, Bethany Addington, for helping me to reflect on and research the topic that I'll be preaching about this morning. I tend to pick research projects that are annoyingly relevant to my own life. (laughs) Things I care about Things I know to be important, but also struggle with. And things I know other people struggle with. Hence my work on offering hospitality to strangers. Practicing gratitude, living truthfully, paying attention to the margins, and so on. So now, I'm working on contentment. It's very good for retirement, actually. Um, But it's another substantially misunderstood and frequently overlooked and undervalued aspect of the Christian life but I think it's one worth recovering. At least I hope so. You might be thinking, contentment, really? Which was actually my first response when it was proposed to me as a topic several years ago. Really, a whole book on contentment? I'm not so sure, I wasn't really convinced. Because it's such an awkward topic, especially for those of us in the US, our economy depends on discontent, It encourages and depends on wanting more. Whatever we have, whatever we are, it's never enough. Envy is cultivated as a major marketing strategy. Just think about the ads for anything, but think about them for cars or for bodies or whatever. Our culture views competition as necessary for excellence and individuals striving as exemplary. People who are content are sometimes viewed as losers, lacking drive and ambition. We say things like, the good is the enemy of the best or of the great, how does that fit with contentment? And we often associate contentment with complacency or a posture of directionless floating, unconcerned about the world around us or even about the direction of our own lives. But also deeply disturbing is the way telling people they should be content has been used as a tool of oppression. Calls for contentment have been a way to keep people from protesting their situations or from trying to better themselves. And sometimes this has been with Christian legitimation. So contentment is seen by some as antithetical to concerns about justice or equality. And then some folks worry that attention to contentment may be imported from Buddhism or other religions of the East, that it's not really a Christian concern. And as Wesleyans, we have a suspicion that contentment might be at odds with our commitments to grow in holiness and sanctification. Contentment with where we are could be spiritually dangerous. So given all these concerns, and many of them have a kernel of truth within them, Why bother with it? Why attend to contentment at all? And I would say you only have to look around or maybe look at your own life and see why it's worth considering. Many of us are drowning in a sea of anxiety and envy, plagued by a sense of inadequacy. We are overwhelmed by too much and yet we continue to strive for more. We are discontent with our bodies, our achievements, our resources, our spiritual progress, our churches, our children, whatever. And we are continually encouraged to want more and to want better, but also to be more and be better. The passage from Philippians that was just read is surely one of the most important biblical texts that addresses the topic, but it's not a very extensive treatment Paul is speaking of his own situation when he says in chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned to be content. And then a bit later he writes, I've been paid in full. I have more than enough. Of course, his context for writing those words might strike us as more than a little odd for talking about contentment. He's in prison, concerned about his friends, unsure of his future, but having survived persecution and various other dreadful things. And yet he can write that he has learned to be content with plenty and with nothing. So what is going on with Paul? What does he mean by contentment? And why might it matter for us? Just to start, let me say there's a lot going on in this chapter in Philippians, and I'm only focusing on one little piece. Paul's comments about his capacity for contentment. But in fact, his brief comments about contentment are tied to many of the other points that he makes in his letter to the Philippians. So let me just do a quick review of some of the high points in this letter to give a sense of the context for his comments on contentment. Paul is writing to beloved co-workers. They are his dear friends. He's writing under difficult circumstances from prison and these friends are deeply concerned about him and their own circumstances are quite precarious. So he writes a letter of encouragement and in chapter one he describes himself as praying with joy about them for their work and also because of his confidence that the one who began a good work in them would bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Under difficult circumstances, the Christians in Philippi are continuing to grow, producing a harvest of righteousness that comes through Christ. Paul encourages the congregation to work out their salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in them. So work it out because God's already doing it. I think that's so interesting and a clue really for the rest of the letter, but he also warns them not to slide into discontent but rather to do all things without murmuring or arguing. And later he urges them not to worry, to let the peace of God guard their hearts, to keep on being faithful, and the God of peace will be with them. He knows they're worried about his imprisonment, and he writes to reassure them that he sees his imprisonment as having helped to spread the gospel. Christ is exalted, he says, whether by life or by death. He writes, for to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Paul gives a sober, sturdy, and profoundly contented evaluation of his own situation in light of the gospel. And then in Philippians 3.12, Paul writes that he views all his previous gains as nothing, as rubbish or loss, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. He is seeking to gain, to know more of Christ. But then he almost stops himself and says, not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Here too, I think are important clues to Paul's capacity for contentment. Compared to knowing Christ, every other gain and every loss is unimportant, even trash. Here for Paul is a dramatic and effective form of comparison It's knowing Christ. That's the focus, that's the telos. Everything else is relativized in the light of knowing Christ, whether it's our successes or our disasters, our recognition or humiliation. Paul writes that he presses on toward the goal, but in a real and remarkable way, the goal already has him. The things we usually trust in for security and happiness the things we think will make us content, whether it's status or success or recognition or even our own achievement of goodness. Ultimately, they don't deliver. Paul says this when he calls it all rubbish. The goal for Paul is knowing Christ and knowing Christ more deeply. But Christ has already made Paul his own. It seems to me that this is the root of Christian contentment. The assurance that we're being held by Christ, knowing that we are God's beloved, each one of us. It's not so much about getting what we strive for or having what we want or being the right kind of person. It's not even about the quality of our love for God or neighbor. It is that Christ has made you and me his own. But Paul is not willing to stay there and be complacent. Somehow he's pressing on toward the goal that already has hold of him, which doesn't really make sense unless we see that the goal is a person. He presses on toward Jesus because Jesus has made him his own. In this complicated yet glorious dynamic, Paul presses on toward the goal, but the goal already has him. He belongs to Christ even as he presses forward to be with him and to be like him more fully. So in the midst of suffering and concern, Paul tells his friends that he's learned to be content and he urges them not to worry. He he doesn't say, be content. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, tell God what you need and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. He can say this to them, because he is learning to live that way. And then interestingly, he goes on to write to his friends, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, pleasing, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And our response might be, really? In the middle of their concerns and sufferings, In the middle of his concerns and sufferings, he tells them to think happy thoughts. But I don't think that's what he's saying. He's talking about what they focus on, what they give their attention to. Make it good. Make it life-giving and just and true. Don't waste your energy and your brain power and your soul or your emotions on garbage, on stuff that doesn't matter, on things that may entertain but ultimately only distract. Don't spend your time noticing what's wrong. Don't focus on what's bad. Think about the good. I think we are trained to be problem solvers. So we tend to notice what's wrong around us. That's what we see first. And analyzing and addressing problems is a helpful thing. But training ourselves to attend to what's good, to see it and dwell on it could be truly liberating because it focuses our desires and our loves and prompts our gratitude. We don't have to see what's bad first. While we certainly need to fix problems, Paul is saying, focus on the good and rejoice. And I think that's the setup for lifestyles of joy and gratitude and contentment. Paul is not talking to a perfect community. They're having their squabbles and differences of opinion He actually has to intervene personally in one that's affecting two of his beloved colleagues and therefore the whole community. But the larger framework of the community is of pressing on together, seeking unity, choosing the humble way of Jesus, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's what shines in this community. So at the end of the letter, at the end of chapter four, Paul writes that he is grateful to the Philippians for providing assistance and for sharing in his distress. They had helped before, and this time they'd wanted to help earlier, but this was the first opportunity. And he writes, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share in my distress. And a bit further, in verse 18, Paul writes about what they have given. And he says, I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied. Isn't that an image of contentment? I have more than enough. I'm fully satisfied. Of course, his circumstances haven't changed very much, but he is content, fully satisfied. So what is it that Paul has learned about contentment? And what is it that we can learn from him? And I would say first, contentment involves rightly ordered desire. It's rooted in gratitude and an undivided heart. Contentment is a settledness of spirit that emerges when our trust and our longings are rightly ordered. It's linked to learning to trust in and long for the right things. It's not blind confidence that everything will be okay. And it's surely not the death of longing and desire, but it's the right ordering, the right direction of our desires, the right focus of our trust and longing. Learning to be content, whatever the circumstances, infuses our efforts and our ministries, our lives with a different spirit. When we realize that it's finally God's work, we don't have to prove something. We don't have to come into every setting sure that we know all the answers or have it all together. We can press on in trust and gratitude for the grace that already holds us, whether the circumstances are difficult or pleasant I think we often struggle with contentment because we struggle with gratitude. Perhaps fearful that a posture of gratitude rules out lament or truthfulness or legitimate criticism, but a life shaped by gratitude to God makes lament and criticism bearable. Similarly, contentment does not preclude lament or sorrow. It gives them a place in a larger story of hope. Second, reclaiming the right source for our contentment addresses our tendencies toward anxiety. Contentment is tied to what we love and to what we fear. There is a profound security available to us when we recognize that the Lord of the universe cares about us and our well-being. Striving after other sources of security, whether it's wealth or relationships or attractiveness or success or intellect, or efforts at contentment or satisfaction that will ultimately fail or disappoint. Resting in God brings enormous freedom and profound liberation from anxiety. I think ours is a strange cultural moment when we can joke about zombie apocalypses and worry about North Korean nuclear weapons, take precautions against school shootings or deadly flu outbreaks, or fret about retirement portfolios. Extraordinary fear-mongering feeds a generalized anxiety. In many ways, it does seem as if anxiety is a particular and distinct feature of contemporary life. And I think maybe the language about anxiety, the way we locate it, may be particularly contemporary. Viewing it as a psychological or a clinical problem But it isn't only our problem. We see it addressed in the Psalms and in the New Testament as a problem for people thousands of years ago. Think of the Psalms that include things like, do not fret, or why are you disquieted, O my soul? Trusting in the Lord is how the psalmist moves through fearful and disquieting things toward confidence and hope and peace. Jesus reminds us, don't be anxious. Consider the flowers and the birds. God takes care of them. You don't need to be anxious. In Matthew 6, Jesus says it three times. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Strive for the kingdom and God's righteousness. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4 when he tells his friends not to worry. Don't be anxious. Anxiety can dominate our lives and limit our freedom to make good decisions. Limit our service to God and others. Anxiety robs us of strength for what we've been called to do. It robs us of joy in the moment and of the capacity to see clearly. Anxiety does not give anything good in return. That's not to diminish the significance of worrisome things, but freedom from fear and anxiety based in trust allows us to live fully. Chronic anxiety is a prison. Fearing that we don't measure up, that we're not good enough, that we're not doing well enough. And I think anxiety is often, sometimes, maybe often, rooted in comparison. Comparing ourselves to others and somehow not measuring up. But each of us is being made into Christ's image, not someone else's. And contentment is tied to trust that God is at work in us to make us more fully into the image of Christ, not the image of our coworker or fellow student or neighbor, the image of Jesus. And the wonder of it is that Jesus is big enough to handle quite a range of personality differences and capacities. So to whose image are we seeking to be conformed? If it isn't Christ's, then our contentment and our discontent will always be disordered and confused. Third, contentment is not at odds with growth and excellence and the pursuit of justice, but it means that the impetus and the strength to pursue growth and change have a different source. Being content is inseparable from pressing on, growing up into Christ. Contentment is not about being passive. In fact, In his sermon on zeal, John Wesley describes contentedness as one of the holy tempers and one of the properties of zeal. Think about that one, contentment as a property of zeal. And he goes on to say, murmuring, fretfulness, discontent, and impatience are wholly inconsistent with zeal. A big risk for us is to see contentment as acquiescence to injustice or as an excuse for sloth or laziness. That's not what Paul is talking about. For Paul, learning contentment provides a sense of security that allows him and us to take enormous risks, to give all we have and then give it again, to love without reservation. Contentment does not preclude being hungry for righteousness and justice. It is the result of it. What contentment precludes is anxiety and anxious striving. Jesus in the Beatitudes says blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness or justice and they will be filled, they will be satisfied, contented. Why? Because God works for justice and cares about righteousness and integrity. Fourth, contentment is not only an individual project It involves a faithful yet imperfect community. Paul's words about contentment pulled out of context sound to our ears very individualistic. And one of the ancient understandings of contentment is self-sufficiency. And contentment may be related to self-sufficiency, but it is also not about being focused on the self. It is most definitely not the same as becoming isolated, insulated preppers. It's not contentment because I've got mine or because I've successfully shut out the world. It's not contentment gained by just closing my eyes and ears and thinking happy thoughts. Paul could be content because he was held by Christ and by a community that cared for him. His understanding of contentment is much more far-reaching than individual self-sufficiency. His capacity for contentment is connected to the love of his friends. Paul loved his Philippian friends and they loved him. Contentment, I think, is fostered by having a certain kind of friends. Those who draw out the best in us, help us to be our best selves, help us to want the right things. They don't have to be perfect, but what a gift if they draw us toward goodness. Contentment involves treasuring good friends and faithful community, as Paul did. And as Jean Vanier has said, we don't need to go looking for perfect community. We just need to treasure the people God has put us, that God has put beside us today. The beauty of our lives and our communities matters. It matters a lot. The world is hungry for pictures of goodness and integrity and love. Not perfect pictures and not pictures that deny suffering or hide mistakes or short circuit the truth. But good lives, generous and gracious lives, contented lives that continue to seek wholeness and holiness. I think we also learn from Paul that in helping others toward contentment, it's not so much about telling them to be content, but modeling it ourselves and helping them to see the grace in their own lives, the faithfulness and love of God, and in walking with them through difficult times. And then finally, Paul's wisdom invites us to embrace the paradoxes in contentment, and let me end just by noting a few of them. First, despite its ancient association with self-sufficiency, contentment is not a selfish or self-centered practice. It's a spacious practice. Because we're freed to lay down our anxiety and restlessness and envy, our contentment can make room for other people their needs and contributions, their hopes and desires. Contentment allows us to make room for working on problems while seeing what's good in difficult circumstances. In the end, contentment brings freedom to live and love without fear. Second, although we tend to assume that we'll be content when we're at the center of things, successful and affirmed by others, Paul finds contentment at the margins in unexpected places. In prison, Paul finds the freedom that comes with contentment in knowing and being known by Christ. And third, despite our tendency to connect contentment with complacency, Paul easily uses the vocabulary of striving and pressing on in the same kind of thought stream as contentment. Why? Because contentment does not preclude wanting to grow or to contribute or desiring excellence. And finally, we see from Paul that contentment can be learned and practiced. We can work at it by directing our desire and focusing our trust. And yet it is also a gift of grace, a response of gratitude to God's extraordinary and costly love. Gratitude and sacrifice are never very far apart for Christians which means that contentment, like gratitude, does not flow because things are easy or happy, but because God's grace is more than enough. As we turn toward the table in communion, we remember together, we remind ourselves of the riches we have in Jesus. Jesus is the living water that satisfies our thirst, the bread that satisfies our hunger, the one who gives us the necessary resources to continue to hunger. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's try this again. Jesus is the one who gives us the resources to continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. Jesus is more than enough. He gives us more than enough, and he makes us more than enough. Our response... uh, Our response as we partake of this gift, which is the gift of himself, is gratitude, contentment, and fidelity. Amen.